0: And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. We'll dismiss our uh, school age to the back. And they go eagerly. And while they head back there, uh, let me invite you, if you brought a Bible with you, <clears throat> to uh, turn to First John chapter 3. First John chapter 3, we've been walking through John's epistles uh, as you turn there, I just want to say Happy Mother's Day to all the moms in here. And um, man, I think back on some of my childhoods, and I'm just thankful for a mom that was so full of grace. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, I just want to just say to the moms in here, just blessings on you. Um, only, only God sees all the things that you've done and the way that you've sacrificed and loved uh, your kiddos. Um, I'm thankful for this greater uh, faith family. A lot of uh, you ladies in here aren't mothers to my children, but uh, you have helped raise my children and I am thankful for that. Uh, just the nurturing uh, um, motherly love that you have uh, even shown to my own kiddos. Today we're in 1 John chapter uh, 3 and uh, we're going to cover the whole chapter and we're going to we're gonna try to get on this here in a minute. Um, before we jump in, imagine, you know, as I, as I read these passages, I try to contextualize what they're saying and who they're saying it to, and John's writing this to a uh, dispersed church. He's writing it, uh, you know, some uh, 50 years after Jesus has been uh, crucified and resurrected to heaven. Uh, it's coming several decades after the other gospels are written. And so John is filling in some of the stories for us, filling in some of the gaps, and uh, the first, uh, the, the other three Gospels, the synoptic Gospels, really focusing maybe uh, on this, uh, the, the, the deity of Christ and the theological implications of who Jesus is. And John is like uh, giving us this like, the, the flesh of it. Like this is who he really was. And so John speaks with such warmth and such love and this is what we get. So I imagine having coffee with John. You know, John had the inside scoop of what it would like to be with Jesus. I mean, he was close. He's the only gospel writer that got to witness so many firsthand things uh, that Jesus did and taught. The only one, only gospel writer that was on the Mount of Transfiguration, the only one who went the distance in the Garden of Gethsemane, if you remember, he took several with them and then, and then John and, and Peter went even a, a little uh, further. He's the only one that stayed at the cross. And saw Jesus literally crucified before his eyes. He's the one whom uh, Jesus entrusted his own mother to as he uh, was dying. He's the only one, the only gospel writer that uh, saw that empty tomb the day that he arose. Remember John tells us that he beat Peter there. Just pretty incredible. And after 50 years of the other gospels, John sits down to write his gospel. And he says it in John chapter 1, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Those are words of a man who is speaking from his heart. And soon after he writes his gospel, he writes this, these letters to the church And he starts out these letters in the similar way that he starts his gospel, saying that this eternal life, Jesus, was made manifest to us. And I'm just proclaiming what we have seen and heard. Now, the church had faced severe persecution. Nearly all of them had been pushed from their homes Think about maybe like the nation of Ukraine in another example. There's a million people pushed away from the place that they knew and they're in distant lands and a distant culture and they're trying to rebuild their life. And this is who he's writing them to. Many of these early Christians had lost their lives. They're trying to recreate a new way of life. They have suffered so much for the gospel. The attacks from without were great. But also, if if you read the letters, there's a lot of attacks from within. There were... what he calls them, antichrist. They were, they were these false teachers that were raising up, teaching a false gospel. A false gospel is something that masquerades as good news, but in the end, it's not really good news. It's got no good news to it at all. So imagine this, you're having coffee with John. It's, it's Mother's Day, maybe, maybe you're gonna go celebrate and have a meal after this. Imagine, imagine John's at that table with you and he's just gonna just share, okay, John, you were there. You saw the things help us encourage our faith. And this is what he does. The one hugging Jesus at the Last Supper. He's sharing his hearts and his concerns and his warnings and his cautions and his encouragements. Just kind of feels like he's older in age. Maybe he's like your grandfather and he keeps telling the same stories again and again. Your grandfather ever did that? And this is what John does. If you read the whole thing, he just keeps telling it again and again. And he's going to say these things again today. But if I were to boil everything down to the message of John, 1 John chapter 3, it would be, it would be this, the sermon and the sentence, the good news of the gospel radically changes lives. It just radically changes lives. About a decade ago, I met a guy in Starbucks and he had a Bible with him. And he was sitting there and, um, and he had, uh, he had, uh, he got caught in his sin and he was facing some legal trouble and he was facing some trouble at home and uh, he was very discouraged and he had grown up in the church and I remember seeing him there and uh, this is when we didn't have any offices so I, Starbucks was the office <clears throat> and uh, so I saw him there and I saw him a couple times day. I, Sat down, just talked to him a little bit. I was like, man, what are you doing? He's like, man, I'm, I'm studying the Bible. I was like, well, that's great. What are you, what are you trying to get after? And he said, like, well, and he just was very honest, man. I've had this, these things happen in my life and I'm in trouble with the law and I'm in trouble with my family and I just know I have to do better. So this is me trying to do better. And I kind of understood what he was getting at, but what he was really talking about was a false gospel. That's the false gospel of works, that we can work our way into acceptance with God. So I began to talk to this gentleman and I was like, well, let me just clearly just spell out the gospel for us, that Jesus became sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's it, simple, simply. And he stood back and just looked so perplexed and he said, I've never, I've never heard the gospel put so simply like that. And he took out his Bible and he said, and I've been going and I've been taking notes. And he showed me and he went to a local church and he showed me all his notes that he had been taking every week. And he had been within the religious framework, but he had not heard the actual gospel presented to him. And so right there in that Starbucks, he just prayed and gave his heart and life to Christ. And his life has been radically different since then. I see him every once in a while and we talk about what God's doing even though the gospel, the good news, it literally means the good news, and it was a word that they used in the Greek culture, um, <clears throat> and it just meant good news that brings joy. And it was of any messenger that would come into a city and they would declare and pronounce the gospel. The gospel was some declaration that brought them joy, and they would come in and say, hey, listen, you know, because of generous, the generosity of Caesar, you don't have to pay taxes this month. I mean, it probably never happened, but that's the kind of good news that you would get, Right. Or they would come in and say the war is over or the king is coming through. That would be the announcement. And so the early Christians just adopted this, this word gospel. It's used this good news, this message of good news that brings forth joy. The Christians adopted it and made it the anthem for the good news of Christianity. And it's used some hundred times through the New Testament. But it's more than just believing, and this is what John is getting at today, it's more than just intellectual assent that I believe that Jesus was the perfect son of God, that he died on a cross, was buried and was uh, raised three days later and ascended to the Father and is coming back for his church. It's more than just believing that. The gospel radically changes lives. It radically reorients our lives. It's a set of truths to understand and believe, yes, but it cannot remain a set of beliefs. If it's truly believed and understood, it radically changes us. One theologian put it this way, the Christian story provides us with a set of lenses. Not something for us to look at, but, f- but something for us to look through. The Apostle Paul would say the very similar thing in Romans Chapter 12, as he looks back over this beautiful exposition of justification in chapters 1 through 11, he turns the corner in chapter 12 in verse 1 and says, therefore, I urge you brothers, in view of God's mercy, mercy, chapters 1 through 11, offer your bodies now as living sacrifices. The gospel radically changes. It changes us from a consumer to a contributor. I mean, it, it radically changes everything. Scripture teaches us that the gospel creates an entirely different way of life that affects everything about us. It's power, Romans 1 says, that creates new life, Colossians 1 says. So in this, we're going to try to pull these three aspects of the gospel, three aspects of the good news from John's gospel. Let's dive in in verse 1, what Emily read just a moment ago. The first aspect of this gospel or the first marker of the Christian life, the first lens, gospel lens that we look through is what Keller, uh, Tim Keller, a, a pastor in New York, would call the upside down aspect of the gospel. It's the upside down. This is what John gets at here. The reason why the world did not know us is because it did not know him. The reason why the world looks at you a little weird because of your beliefs and the way that you operate and your life, the things that you value, The, the reason that you don't really fit in is because the world didn't know you. And you should expect that because the world didn't know him. It's this, what Paul would later say that we're like aliens or we're, we're strangers, we're foreigners. And this all comes from Jesus. The world, the reason why he says the world does not know us is it didn't know him. Jesus came in. He was the king who became a servant. And we see a reversal of values in the way that the king of God worked. Just read the Sermon on the Mount. Bless those who persecute you. Who does that? What kind of reversal of values is someone who seeks to love their enemies and bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. And if someone, you know, ask for your tunic, give them, give them the cloak too. It's just like this radical way of your, it's just so radical. Even the disciples didn't get it, this countercultural way of life. They're trying to say, okay, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Is it, is it seven times? Because seven, I might be able to give my brother-in-law seven times. I can forgive him that many times. I might be able to give my, I forgive my neighbor seven times. And Jesus says, no, 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 you missed it. Seven, Seventy times seven. As in an exponential amount of forgiveness. That is just, that is, that is crazy talk. That is just something otherworldly. And this is the kingdom that Jesus was bringing in. In Jesus' kingdom, the poor and sorrowful and persecuted are above the rich and the recognized and the satisfied. Jesus said in Matthew 19 the first shall be last. Well, how? Because we model this countercultural kingdom after our king. Though Jesus was rich, he left the glory of heaven to become poor. Lived a very poor life. Didn't even have a home. Though he was king, he served. Though he was the greatest, he made himself the servant of all. Though he triumphed over sin, not by taking up power, but what, laying down his life sacrificially. The reversal of kingdom values. This is the upside-down aspect of the kingdom. He won through losing everything. Think about this. What does our world value the most? Just our world today. Power and status and likes and followers and bags of gold and more status. These are the things our world values, if I can just get more of them, if I can just get a nicer house, but this time with a pool. The pool is like the thing, right? If you can get a pool and then a beach house and then a beach house with a pool, right? If I could get the beach house with a, and then some jet skis. Like we just want to, if we could just get all the things, if I could just, you know, when I, now when I was a senior in high school, I thought I was gonna get all the things. If some of the some of some of you in here know what I was like in high school, like I was a hustler. I was selling watches out of the back of my car. I was cutting grass. I would do anything I could do to make a little more money. Anything I could do. Because I on wanted the beach house with a pool, right? And this is what the world says is the most important. So this is listen, ignore your families if you have to, work long hours, cheat if you do whatever you have to do because The bag of gold at the end of the rainbow is worth it and you should give everything for it until you talk to some people who have found it and it's worthless. And they've got four or five houses with all the pools and they're still missing something. This is why John is saying the world does not know us because true followers of Jesus are going to be misunderstood. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be misunderstood for taking less vacations and instead investing that into kingdom work, for giving up your Sunday nights to go serve the least of these. You're going to be misunderstood for not going eye for eye, for instead forgiving, for turning the other cheek, for welcoming the immigrants for blessing your neighbors for blessing those that you're gonna be misunderstood and Peter goes as far in his letter and says hey church be ready because when you live that upside down kind of life some other people are gonna look at you weird and they're gonna say man you gotta tell me about the hope that you have this is the upside down aspect of the gospel It creates a new kind of servant community with people who live out an entirely alternate way of being human. And it plays out on so many levels. Racial and class superiority, the accrual of money and power at the expense of others, yearning for popularity and recognition, all all the marks of living in our world. They represent the the opposite of this gospel mindset, the upside-down aspect of the gospel. And John starts with this identity That you are loved, you are called children of God, and so we are. And because you're called children of God, this upside down aspect of the gospel, that's why the world doesn't recognize you. That's why you don't really fit here. Jesus was made manifest, going back to chapter 1, so that we could know how life was really meant to be lived in the kingdom of God. when I moved uh, here to plant this church, um, I thought we were making a big step of faith and we had a great job in Dallas. And we were gonna move back here and we were gonna start a new church. And I really thought that there would be a lot of people just welcoming us here. You know, just like on I-20 when we're coming in, you know, at the fly and Jay be like, yes, Luke and Ashley are here. And we got none of that. As a matter of fact, my first week, even before I got here, but my first week here, I received two letters from pastors, local pastors, um, using very harsh language telling me that I should pack up and go back home because they did not need me here. And like every good spiritual pastor, I wanted to find a way to go punch them in the throat. I was like, how can I put poles in their tires or, you know, egg their houses? Where do they live? Let's go. Let's, let's. But there was another pastor who did receive me and I'm sitting down with coffee with him for the first year and I'm telling him a little bit about this. It's like, we've not received a good reception. Uh, What do you think I should do? And he said, he leaned forward and I was like, oh, this is gonna be good. He said, have you tried serving them? I was like, heck no, I haven't served them. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to go egg their house. What do you mean serve them? And he reminded me of this very idea. Because the kingdom of God is upside down. That means whatever your fleshly impulse is to do in traffic, you do the opposite of that. You bless others. You bless those that curse you. What a crazy idea. And can I tell you why most of the world doesn't find Christianity attractive? Is because most of us, we we don't like this part of the gospel. We don't live upside down lives. Instead of trying to live countercultural to the world, we live with the world and we just put Jesus' stamp on it. Jesus told me to do this. No, he didn't. I'm gonna try not to get on a soapbox. Let's keep going. The upside down aspect, you got it? That's the lens we look through. Maybe you would even ask yourself, does my, does my life look upside down to the rest of the world? Does it look, does it look that way? Verse four. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, speaking of Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him, going back to last week's message, to remain, to hang out, to spend time with him, to let your roots grow deeply in him, to stay connected to him. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he, Jesus, is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he can't keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So we have the upside down lens, and then this is the forward back aspect of the gospel. And I'm gonna gonna explain it to you. Jesus is resurrected, but we are not. He has inaugurated the kingdom of God in his coming as death and burial and resurrection, but it's not fully present yet. That won't happen until he returns. The coming of Jesus occurs in, in two stages and bear with me for a little bit and, then, and I think this is gonna make sense. At his first coming, he saved us from the penalty of sin and gave us the presence of the Holy Spirit as a down payment for the age to come. Ephesians talks about that, talks about that in, uh, in, in chapter one, It talks about that in chapter two, him being the propitiation for our sins. And at the end time, The second coming, he's going to come to complete what he began in the first coming, saving us from the dominion and very presence of sin and evil altogether. In verse 2 here it says, when he appears, we shall be like him. Revelation describes the devil, he's brought up a couple times here, however you want to call him, the devil or Satan or Beelzebub or the evil one or the prince of the power of the air, there's a lot of names for him here. But Revelation describes the devil as a dragon with a mortal head wound. And while he's falling to the ground, the age we live in, he's trying to create as much destruction as possible. So he was dealt the death blow when Jesus resurrected from the grave. And he will be completely vanished when Jesus returns. But in the space between the age that we live in, this is the great dragon, as Revelation says, falling to the ground. That Jesus will come and bring a new creation, a material world, cleanse of all brokenness and tears and death and trouble. But the forward-backed aspect of the gospel means that we don't simply just sit around like Forrest Gump on the, on the, on the bus stop and just, and just wait. No, we work for the kingdom of God who is beginning to come. We work to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth even now. This is what John says here in verse 10. We live in light of that future reality. We have this different kind of hope. Verse 10, by this it's evident who are children of God. There were some, I told you, there some false teachers and they had several different false messages. And one of those messages is as long as you put your, uh, as long as you sealed your salvation by believing in Jesus, then you can live however you want to. That was their message. Maybe you've heard, oh, me and Jesus are good. I'm gonna do whatever I want to now. So this is Grandpa Pastor John counteracting that with actual truth, verse 10. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who doesn't love his brother. Now, righteousness is just a Bible word for rightness. Like we're pursuing the right thing. Positionally, we're made right with God when we trust Jesus as our savior, his death on the cross for my sins, the propitiation, again, we talked about a few weeks ago. But also, we choose every day to walk in righteousness. And here's, here's what Proverbs would say that we walk in wisdom. It simply means that we agree with God's absolute truth and we decide to follow his ways, even when the world says differently. what does the word of God say? Those are the words that are echoing in my mind and ears all the time for my dad. Anytime I had an issue or a problem or there was a decision in front of me that I didn't know what to do, I would go to him and, and want his wisdom and he would take me back to God's word and he would say, let's see what God's word says about it. This is what it means to pursue rightness, to walk in wisdom. What does the word of God say? This is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. So we tell people about the gospel, about the good news. But we also help the poor and work for justice because we know that this is God's will and that he will ultimately overcome all oppression. Basically, in other words, it says our faith, our belief in the gospel impacts everything we do in hopes that maybe we can actually change culture. And hopes that our culture will reflect heaven coming to earth. We work for human flourishing, the common good. Jeremiah says, the welfare of the city. There's a book we read called In Your Neighborhood as It Is in Heaven. And we talked about this as a staff several years ago. And it starts with this question What would it look like for the kingdom of heaven to invade your neighborhood? If the kingdom of heaven invaded, overcame, took over your neighborhood when you got home today, what would look different? And it really stretches your brain to think, what would King Jesus do? What happens when heaven invades earth? The forward back aspect of the gospel. When we look through these lenses, will sins get forgiven and outcasts get taken in and nobody's become somebody's? And the poor in spirit are the ones that are blessed. And people's name, people are renamed from Simon the failure to Simon the rock. And anyone can get on, in on this. We see heaven invading earth in thousands of different ways that the children of God begin to walk in faith. We've just come out of a series where we've been asking that question, Lord, what would you have me do? And then we are going to risk obeying him. And so we're seeing kids beginning to the process, the parents beginning to the process of adopting. And we're going to see kids who were orphans now have a family. That's the kingdom of heaven coming to earth in, in little tangible ways. Some of you have heard from God and you, the thing you heard from God was to go to forgive someone who had hurt you deeply and you've, you've taken that step and every time we take a step into the light like that, the kingdom of heaven a little more clear starts invading earth a little bit more. When people volunteer to help children Learn how to read or someone seriously blesses someone that's walking through spiritual turmoil or confesses holding a grudge against someone else or seeks to forgive and extend forgiveness or gets this idea to be generous with their money and actually does it or someone who takes the time to actually look someone else in the eye and love them. I was reading the story about the rich young ruler this week and Jesus knew what he was going to do. It says, and Jesus saw him... He looked at him and it says he loved him. And I just love that about Jesus. He just took time to see people and love them. This is the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. People who cross ethnic barriers. To show love or shows compassion to an infant or defends the rights of a vulnerable woman or treats the overlooked with dignity or holds on to hope in the face of death. And once again, the kingdom of God is invading earth through the people of God. This is the forward back lens of the gospel. I learned a lot of this from Cassie Hammett. Y'all know Cassie. She started The Hub. And Cassie was a long term friend of mine and Jason, Layton, and some others. Um, in middle school, we were together. And she had this crazy idea to start this nonprofit to just love on poor and homeless and the destitute and the broken and so we came to town about a few months after they had kind of started this ministry and it was Miles who leads worship sometimes his dad owned the building downtown and it started kind of out of the car and then that basement and I would go and meet with Cassie and she would just spend hours loving on these people And I learned a lot about what it means to have this forward back aspect of the gospel that we are working to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth now, even as Jesus would do. Last Christmas, uh, Cassie texted me. We've been a long-term sponsor of The Hub. Cassie texted me and said, hey, I'm going to come by. If you're uh, you're around the office, I'm going to come by and bring you something. I was like, oh yeah, I'm here, come on. And she didn't show up in an hour or two hours or three hours. And I was like, oh man, well, I'm gonna, I don't know what she's got, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to the house. And on my way home, she texted me, said, hey, are you still in t- downtown? I was like, no, I'm not. I'm already headed home. And she said, sorry, I, I saw one of my downtown friends and they just needed someone to talk to. And I can be honest with you as a pastor, you know what welled up in me? How dare she do that? She told me she was coming to see me. We had an appointment set. Am I not more important than the person that she went to see? And the Holy Spirit said as loud as he could in my heart, no, you're not, sir. No, you're not. This is the forward back aspect of the gospel. That we work, friends. This is not we come in and sit on our on our fannies and we listen to good music and good preaching and we leave out here and we look just like the world. No, no, no. John's saying, no, no, no. This is so far different than that. You should be able to easily tell who's a child of God and who's a child of the devil, he says. And, and, the, and the two things, the tell signs that he gives us, that we practice righteousness. We seek to do the right things before God. We agree with God's word on what God's word says about things. And we love our brother. Our faith, faith impacts everything that we do. I learned this from Cassie. I learned this from Miles, our worship leader. When they first started the hub, they didn't want to give them a certificate of occupancy. And so he sat in the office in Shreveport every day. He would get there at eight. They didn't want to talk to him. They didn't want to give him sit there from eight to five o'clock every day. And he would just read a book. And he did it for three months, every day. Until they finally said, Hey, I don't think this guy's leaving. I think we're going to have to meet with them. I learned this from Jason McDonald. I don't know if he's here. Jason and Taylor gave so much money and so much of their time to provide rides for some of these, our downtown friends that moved from homelessness to a home. I mean, every day would drive across town to bring them to work and to pick them up. Just incredible ways. And this is the invitation that we have, friends, that we can put on this lens of the upside down kingdom. That we're here to serve and not be served, and we can also put on this lens of the forward-back aspect of the kingdom of the gospel. That we're here to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. But, but there's a third look in verse 11 with me. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning: that we should love one another. Remember, I told you John's like this; he's a bit uh, sporadic. He's just hitting all the things that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother was righteous. Don't be surprised, again, here's that upside down. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we've passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is really a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is the last aspect of the gospel. This is the inside out. We've got the upside down and the forward back and now the the inside out. This is the other lens that we look at all of life through. And Jesus talks so much about this. He talked about the good tree that has good roots bears good fruit. But the tree that doesn't bear good fruit does, is not really rooted in the things of God. See, religion emphasizes the outside. This is what my buddy in Starbucks was trying to do. If I try hard enough, maybe I'll be good enough. But you know what? You just can't fake that for very long. Eventually, what's inside will be exposed. This is what he says in verse 14 here. We know that we have passed from death to life. You know how we know when, when we're really part of it? We, when we sacrificially love other people. And I think Jesus would give us a little more commentary in the Good Samaritan. When we, when we sacrificially love other people that we're not supposed to love. He gives us here the example of Cain who didn't love the Lord And because he didn't love the Lord and he despised his own brother, he hated him so much that he killed him. A lack of love will eventually show itself. The religious elites of Jesus' day tended to emphasize the externals of the covenant, of what it meant to be uh, people of God. They had these boundary markers like uh, the way that you keep Sabbath and and the, the circumcision and the, the Torah and on and on. And that's what they emphasized so much to where they, they were tithing their, their mint and their herbs. Now, the, the rule said that, you, that was kind of a gray area. You, you had to tithe your crops and, and you had to tithe and they listed several plants. You had to take 10%. But the Pharisees went to the next level and they said, you know what? I don't, I don't have to tithe my mint, but I'm going to. So I'm gonna go out to my little mint plant and I'm gonna break a little off and I'm gonna put a little bit in my tea and I'm gonna save a little bit for, the, for God. God, here's your mint. And Jesus says, you've gone, you're so diligent to keep the law, but it's outside. He says, inside you're a whitewashed tomb. You're outside pretty, inside full of dead men's bones. Strong words for, from Jesus. And he was making this point that God's kingdom is not a matter of eating or drinking, this is what Paul said in Romans 14, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Why would this be? Because Jesus took our place on the cross and accomplished salvation for us, which we freely receive as a gift. Traditional religion teaches that if I do good deeds and follow more rules and all my external behavior, then God, there's a chance that God will come into my heart and bless me and give me salvation. In other words, if I obey, God will love. But the gospel is the reverse of that. If I know in my heart that God has accepted me and loves me freely by grace, then I can begin to obey and really love others out of inner joy and gratitude. Religion is outside in. The gospel is inside out. We are justified by grace alone, not by works. We are beautiful and righteous in God's sight by the work of Christ. Now, if we know that, then we're free to serve and love and give. If you base your salvation on how well you're doing, then you'll be proud when you do it well and you'll be wrecked with shame when you can't keep up. This was me as a senior in high school. Poor Ashley, how she stayed with me, I have no idea. If I was riding in your car and I saw that you had secular music in your car, I would just throw it out the window. Not kidding, that's who I was. I told you that story, right? Well, there's several stories. That's just who I was. I was this arrogant Pharisee that had built my faith on how well I could keep up and I could do it. Until I couldn't. Until I couldn't do it anymore. And then I was wrecked with shame because I had, I had built my little kingdom as if I didn't need the grace of God that I had earned it that I had disciplined myself by fasting twice a week and I had disciplined myself and disciplined myself until I couldn't do it anymore that's religion it's outside in but the gospel is inside out and friends so many of us you just need to hear this the gospel today is not about you just trying to kill it it's that Jesus has already accomplished salvation for. Jesus was not hanging on the cross and yelling out, "You better try hard. You bet. Oh, you better work hard to get it." No, what did he say? As Jason reminded us on Good Friday, he said, "It is finished." Once we gain this understanding on the inside, it revolutionizes how we relate to God how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to other people. I'm gonna try to get through this quick. We we relate to God as a loving father. We're, We're confident before him. It says in verse 28 of chapter two, verse 21 here, that we can be confident before God. In Luke chapter 12, he says this, I love this verse. In Luke chapter 12, verse 32, I think I have this on here. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We relate to God as a loving Father, not as an angry coach, not as a not as a distant manager, not as someone who's watching the the, the P and line all the time. We don't. We, he's not the, the the boss in the in the sky. He's our loving Father. Of all the things that Jesus would teach us how to relate to God, we relate to Him as a loving Father. And then how we relate to ourselves. We relate to ourselves as beloved sons and daughters. Look in verse 19. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. He's kind of Yoda talk here. This is what he's saying. When we see love at work in our lives, we can know that we are of the truth. And this brings an assurance to our hearts before God that we are standing in right relationship with him. When we love others, our assurance is twofold. First, that God already knows everything about us and he loves us and he cares for us and he desires us. And second, that God knows all things and knows who we truly are in Jesus Christ. If we're born again, then the authentic self is the one created in the image of Jesus. That's our assurance. But then, verse 20, it says, But if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and He knows all things. What if we've been law, walking in love, but our heart still condemns us because of overactive imagination? I talk to people like this all the time, even myself. When I'm killing it and I'm waking up early and I'm reading God's word and I'm just encouraged in the word of God, I have confidence before God and I go to God and I, I, I feel the promise that anything I ask of him that he's gonna give, you know, you, and you walk in real confidence and boldness before your heavenly father. But when I'm not having a good week and I fall in my sin and I hit this news and didn't wake up and spend time with him and it's a real, it's a real challenge to live, you know how I... I don't live in confidence, I live in cowardice. And this is why this is such a beautiful verse, friends. It says that God is greater than our hearts. God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. So he reminds us that we can't base our relationship purely on how we feel. I feel close or I feel far. Condemnation can well up inside that has nothing to do with our standing before God. It could be the work of the enemy of our souls who Revelation says is a constant accuser of the brethren. It could be a work of our overactive mind. It could be a work of maybe the world that we live in or what we're meditating on. And in those times, we have to trust what God's word says about our standing, not how we feel about it in the moment. Do you see how this changes how we relate to ourselves as dearly beloved sons and daughters? Friends, don't base your faithfulness. Don't base your faith on your faithfulness, but on His. God is greater than our feelings. This inside-out lens changes how we relate to God and ourselves, and even to others. And He's going to bang this drum in the entire next chapter too. Basically, here's the secret. It's the way that we love. In verse 17, tell me about that, John. What does it mean just to love someone? I just bring them cookies? Or what, what does that mean? If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and in truth. You know, it's Mother's Day today and this is a fitting example. I was just thinking this morning about the love of a mother and I've got to witness that Uh, certainly my mom's love towards me for 42 years maybe 35 of those I can remember maybe but I've seen how my wife loves our kids and some pretty incredible things that moms do to love their kids I mean first it's they give of their very own body to, to, to grow a human inside of them. And then the way God made it, they use their very own body to feed that kid, which is just so crazy and bizarre. And I remember after uh, we had our third and uh, and they were getting more increasingly difficult and we had, had our third and and we were still in that fog of like newbornness. Some of you know what that's like, where you're just like not sure what day it is. And if you have baby poop on your face, you just don't know anything. You're just like, I'm just doing my best. And we're walking in Target. We're just like, we're like a weekend. We're walking in Target and Ashley sees the maternity section. And she's like, oh, let's have another one. I was like, babe, I mean, you... You were screaming in the hospital bed seven days ago because you didn't have any medicine and you were pushing, pu- pushing a, a human outside, outside of you. Can, can you imagine? Are you, you want another one? I think about my mom's love for me. I remember the summer after I graduated high school. This is fitting too because we had seniors here when I told you about how horrible of a Pharisee I was. I I thought I knew everything. It was the smartest I'd ever been in my life and have ever been since then. (laughs) Because I was a senior in high school. And, you know, I earned enough credits in high school and learned algebra too. So, I mean, certainly I know more than NASA physicists at this point. I know more than everybody. I certainly know more than my parents. And I was a bear to live with. And me and my dad, and this was weird because my dad never really had curfews on me, but when I graduated high school, he started putting curfews in. He's like, I need you home by one, which is completely reasonable. What happens after one o'clock is not good in the morning. And we started arguing about it. And, you know, as dads do, he put his foot down. Like, my house, my rules. And I was like, well, I'll show you. I'll go live in a tent outside. My tent, my rules. My rules. I literally said that to him and then ran before he took a haymaker to the, uh... and no kidding, I don't know if, I don't know if if, if my siblings remember this, I lived in a tent for like 10 days in the yard and would have to like go to like McDonald's to use a bathroom because I was not going in that house, his house, his rules, and I just assumed I would just live out there until I went to college, I assumed, Um, I smelled terrible, oh my goodness, and it was the love of my mom that brought me and my dad's hearts back together. You know, she was like, well, Larry, you know, was talking and guttering him up a little bit. Maybe, maybe, maybe you can come down a little, and Luke, your dad really loves you. I just thought about that love this week, and it just reminded me, it was an image to me of the love of God for us. Psalm says the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. I read that in my reading last week and it just really stirred my heart. But this week I read in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. This comes right, right after the writer is talking about his own pride and how he's run from God and he's praying that God would remember him in his wanderings, it says. That my soul is discouraged or bowed down within me, but I call this to mind and therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The gospel, the love of God works inside out. It changes us to make us loving people that we don't live for ourselves. Second Corinthians five passage that they they no longer live for themselves. So these three things that John brings up are the fruit of tasting the love of God, of stepping over a line of faith, or being part of God's family. This countercultural approach to life, this upside-down living, does the world misunderstand you or do you fit right in? Are you just living for the same thing they are? This forward back, this supernatural hope and the kingdom of heaven that's coming down, this living hope, Peter would call it, this living and the victory that Jesus has won for us even though we don't see it in its fullness quite yet. And then this inside out, this radical love for other people. Can I just ask, who do you radically love that's unlovable? Who do you love expecting nothing in return? Again, I'm not saying that you'll be perfect by any means. But I am saying that when you're born again, you see the birth of these things in your heart in an increasing way. Are they in your heart today, friends? Are they growing? Maybe you'd say, no, they're not. Let me just say, what do you do if they're not? You believe the gospel. This is is the love story of the gospel. Always has been, always will be. Whatever the diagnosis of what's wrong with me spiritually, there's one prescription and it's believing the gospel. That Jesus loves you. That he left the glory of heaven to die on a cross for you. That he was buried in a borrowed tomb, resurrected after three days, made an appearance to 50 and the disciples and 500 at one time. It was a group of 120 gathered on the Mount of Ascension as he floated back and ascended up into heaven and he promised that he's coming back. This is the gospel. I wanna pray for us. The band's gonna come back and lead, lead us in a song, but I want this just to be a time where you just take a self-diagnostic of your own heart and there's no condemnation or embarrassment here. I'm not coming to get you. I'm not asking you to stand up. I just, I just want you to really would you just ask the Lord if you're his? Not, not, if you, not if you went down an aisle one day or if you said some prayer or is this, there's, no, there's no magic spell here it's just current faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Is that you? And if it's not friend I would just implore you I would beg of you just to believe the gospel it's The gospel is for you. Maybe you've been a Christian a long time. Something happened at the hands of evil men and you were really hurt. It took everything you had just to be in this room today. Could you just hear the love of the Father speaking over you today that he loves you? Maybe there's those of you in this room and you've been actively pursuing the heart of God and I just want to encourage you. Keep doing it, friends. Living an upside-down life, setting your hope on the eternal, this forward-back kind of living, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth and letting the love of God manifest itself inside of you and spill on everyone you come in contact with. God, I love you. I thank you for today. I thank you for uh, the moms in the room thank you for just the way that uh, they mirror your love for us sacrificial, nurturing God I pray that you would speak to our hearts today as we pause just a moment to hear your words over us and then we sing back to you I pray that our worship would be a sweet aroma. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Continue just praying there. Uh, Adam and Emily are going to lead us in just a second. If you'd like to pray with someone, I'll be in the back and pray. Some of our prayer team would be back there.